Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good. Maybe the music woke everybody up. Um, this is the start of our summer psalm series. If you have been part of LSQ for a while, you know that in the summer we take a few weeks and we take a few of the psalms and we look at the psalms. And so that's what we're doing beginning uh, today. And we're skipping a whole bunch of the psalms to get to Psalm 46. Um, but I think it is an important psalm for us in our time. And so... One of the things I want us to do this morning is to take a few moments and think about what it's like to live in our time. I heard a one uh, a person uh, call this a time we live in a post-everything uh, uh, time. Whatever that means, I want us to consider what does it mean to live in this time. But better yet, how do we thrive in this time, not just simply survive. I was reading a group of sociologists uh, this week, and they called this time a lamini, uh, liminal age. Uh, let me spell it for you, liminal, uh, L-I-M-I-N-A-L. And what they mean by that, because it literally just means transition, they're talking about a transitional fa phase where we are post something, something has ended, and something else is about to start, but it hasn't yet started. And so the in-between of what has come to an end and what is next is called liminal, that space, that transition. And so whatever that means, that's what's in that time. Here's what I mean by this idea that whatever else is going on in 2023, we're in some transition from what we previously experienced to something else. 
maybe you've heard this term. It's not used much. It kind of ended about six or seven years ago, this idea we live in a postmodern world. And what they meant by that was the 20th century was a modernization of this world, particularly first uh, uh, level countries like the West. And so past that, they call that postmodern. We don't live in the 20th century. We're in the 21st century. But truthfully, if we're honest, we live in a post-almost-everything world. What I mean by that is 22 years ago, we began to live in a post-9-11 world. What that means is going to the airport is not like it used to be. Just 23 years ago, you could go to the airport, walk through no security, and go right to the gate and be with your friends and family as they got on and off of the plane. That's been gone for two decades now. Now you have to plan early. We live since 2015 in a post-Michael Brown world, a post-George Floyd world. If you don't know what that means, is that every time an African-American is killed by the police, there is a question about motivation and circumstances, and you can uh, a complaint about that you can raise your hands in frustration and say that's terrible but the truth is if that wasn't going on in our culture it would never make us even think about that and that's a change uh, you and I live in a post-pandemic for the last uh, year and a half and you know that means things have changed I was uh, uh, on the airplane and somebody started coughing and so no longer do you think oh that person is okay they just need some water now you're thinking where's my mask truthfully I went to General Assembly two and a half weeks ago and got COVID <laughs> and so I had that and it was just like feeling the flu so yes uh, the pandemic is over, but COVID is here to stay for a while. Uh, some sociologists say that, uh, Christian sociologists say that we are living in a post, in the Western world, a post-Christian world. And what they mean by that is that uh, uh, Christians in the church used to have a lot of influence over the Western culture. All you have to do is look at all the arts and uh, 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 schools and orphanages and hospitals all started by uh, churches. And and, and yet we're seeing a dwindling of that. So in a post-everything world, uh, we no longer are where we were, and we're heading somewhere else, but that middle piece, that transitional place, is where we find ourselves. And I don't mean we're changing fashion, or we're changing uh, preferences or practices. That goes on all the time. What I'm talking about is that our very assumptions and shared values are changing. And when our common values and assumptions are fundamentally changing, not just changing in increments, but fundamentally changing, it's a little disorienting to live in that world as it changes. What used to take us decades to change now is taking mere years, and in some cases even shorter than that. So not only are things changing, but they're changing incredibly fast at a foundational level, not just simply at a practice or a preference level. Our grandparents, and if you could sit them down, if they were still alive, you could ask them, and they don't recognize this age in which we live. 
It is so foreign and so different than the one that they grew up in. It's unrecognizable. Let me illustrate what I mean. There's a great book called Faith Among the Fatherless, uh, Mike uh, Cosper wrote. And in it, he's got this wonderful illustration. He says, uh, an airport is a liminal space, if you think about it. If you think about an airport, he says that we, an airport is an in-between space. You, uh, you're leaving one place and you're going to another. And so the airport is the in-between you're not there yet, and you're not where you were, but you're in this space. Well, he goes on and he says, and I think this is very helpful, have you ever had that feeling when you get to your gate and you sit down and you see the buzz at the desk, you know something is wrong, but you don't know yet what it is. It hasn't been announced. But the buzz makes you uncomfortable. I'm not talking about somebody just changing seats or upgrading, but simply everybody's around the desk because they're getting alerts you not yet have that your plane has been delayed or canceled. And that causes you to feel stress because your plans probably have fundamentally changed. You, are, you might still want to go where you're going, but you're not going there when you thought you were going. And probably not even how you are going. And so that disorientation is when you're in a transitional phase. Because you don't have the norms and the values and the understanding of where you are. Or yet where you're going. And the truth is, few alive can remember a transitional phase like the one we're in. In fact, the last time... The United States had this kind of liminal phase was the decade after World War II. And so almost collectively, there's no memory in our culture of what that was like. There are people who can remember, but it's not in our collective memory, memory of what it was like to transition, what life was like before World War II, and what life was like after World War II. And so what are these effects? These effects is you feel disoriented. That feeling you have when you read the paper or you watch the news or you hear something, that feeling you have, that stress you have is understandable because everything around us is changing. What we thought was solid, what we thought was unchangeable is now malleable, is now fluid. And we don't know where it's going to stop. I love Alan Noble's uh, book, You're Not Your Own. And in it he says, it feels like we are floating in space. Free to move about the cabin, but unable to touch the ground. And so it, it not only is a little disorienting to go through this, but we have noticed that it's also isolating. And for many people, feeling lonely. That's not because of the pandemic. All the pandemic did for us, as far as changing our culture, is sped it up. The trends that were already there. We were already isolating as a culture. We were already separating as a culture. And that just kind of sped it up for us. But it also has divided and fractured us. No one alive could look at where we are as a culture and not see the challenging of beliefs and values and not just simply challenging them and debating them, but now we are counseling and marginalizing those that we disagree with. 
primarily out of fear and frustration. So how do we thrive in that? This is where our text comes in. We're really looking at a refrain that is repeated uh, uh, twice, verse 7 and then again in verse 11. And we're just going to take that apart because it says two things to us. Here's the phrase, the Lord Almighty is with us. First, we're going to look at the Lord Almighty, which is power. You know, he didn't have to say it this way. He could have said, the Lord is with us. He could have said, Emmanuel. But he said, the Lord Almighty, the fact that our Lord is powerful. And then secondly, we're going to look at this idea of being with us, which is Emmanuel, God with us. It's two tools to address how we feel in this time and in this place, in this liminal age, we need both these things. In fact, power gives us comfort because we know, I mean, gives us uh, hope because we know that the person who has power can do something about what we're dealing with, what we're facing, the hardship, the struggle. And then presence comforts us because somebody's with us, right there with us. One of the isolating things about trouble and, and, and uh, division and conflict is that we feel like we're alone. We feel like we're in this all by ourselves, that no one else is experiencing what we are experiencing. And so we need both of these things, power and presence. If we have power without presence, we have what? Hope without comfort. And if we have presence without power, we have comfort, but we have no hope that it's ever going to end. Yes, it's great that somebody's in there with us, but if that person is able to help us, uh, then it's just comfort. And so that's why this phrase is so powerful in this verse, that the Lord Almighty is with us. That the one who's with us can do something about what we are so scared, what we're afraid of, what is threatening our existence. So why does power give us hope? When you feel disoriented by change and disoriented by the speed of change, I'm talking about this fundamental foundational change, not just change in general, where everything that we depended on to help us define life, define goodness, define beauty, define meaning, that which is predictable, that has given us understanding about our world and everything in it. When that happens, we need help because we feel disoriented. We feel threatened and afraid. And so what do we do when we feel something is threatened that is dear to us? We try to take control, right? We, we begin to massage the environment to help us control what seems to be out of control that might threaten to take what is precious uh, to us. We try to exercise power ourselves, but what happens with what we're facing is bigger than what the power that we have. Do we uh, just say, uh, que sera, sera? Do we just say, give up and just let be, let be? Or do we look for someone or something or some group to exercise power that will save us? Well, it's the latter, right? I mean, there are a few who just kind of give up. But by and large, what happens when we feel threatened is that we, if it's beyond our ability to control, we look for someone else to control it. 
I want to say that that, thank you, almost sounded like a gong. That feeling, that tendency of ours to look for a power that can help us is how we were built. It's not an aberration of humanity. It was built into humanity. To look at what scares us to death and to look for someone who can rescue us. What does the Bible call that person? In the Old Testament, they used to call it the Messiah. In the New Testament, they call him the Savior. You see, the Bible recognizes that you and I were built for a Savior. And every time we feel threatened, every time we feel that things are out of control, we turn to a Messiah. We turn to a Savior to rescue us. That feeling is natural. What we turn to isn't so natural. Because often we don't turn to him, we turn to others, which is where our Psalm 46 is. The first six verses of this passage talk about nations are in an uproar. That word nations literally just means people groups are in an uproar or people themselves. And, and you know that when, when you think about the United States in the last uh, decade, Ferguson riots in 2019 after Michael Brown was killed, or many, Minneapolis riots after 2020 after George Floyd was killed, or in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, or the riots in France right this week. People are in uproar. That should not surprise us. It has been that way uh, since Genesis 3. We feel out of control, powerless. We feel that everything that we know, everything that we depended on to tell us what is good and beautiful and right seems to be turned on its head and constantly in change. And so the only thing we can do is get in an uproar about it because we have no power to change. And then it says that kingdoms fall. And you know, every kingdom that has ever existed in the world in history has fallen. And you say, but, but not the United States. Well, it's true, but we're quite a baby in the world. We are a mere 240 uh, some odd years old. So compared to other kingdoms, we're still in our infancy. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. You think about Japan, 1945, or China, 1949, the Soviet Union in 1989. It, the list in history is quite long. Kingdoms fall. And, and can you imagine how the people felt when they say, hey, we didn't have a leader for the past 240 years where it was a succession, peaceful succession. Some of these kingdoms had leaders for millennium. 
a thousand-year reign, a 2,000-year reign. So my point being is, imagine how it feels when everything you knew and everything your parents knew, everything your grandparents knew has been replaced by something else. And yet we are told what in this text? Do not fear. Why? Why, why would we, who facing real fears, be told not to fear? It is because there really is a Messiah. There really is a Savior. There really is a rescuer. There really is a refuge. There really is a fortress who has the power to rescue us from what scares us to death. All the Messiahs have put, uh, that we put our hope in all the people that have exercised power on your behalf, all of the groups that you have joined in hopes of exercising power, all of them point to one real Savior. Good or bad. Kings, good or bad. Presidents, good or bad. All of them have pointed to one Savior who can rescue us. What does that power even look like? Jesus demonstrated his power in a number of ways, but two storms, just real quick, two beautiful storms that scared his disciples to death. The first one, they're on a lake, and and, uh, Jesus has gone with them on a boat. I can't imagine. It's a very big boat, but there's uh, his uh, disciples and Jesus, and Jesus is falling asleep, and a storm comes up, and they're scared to death. And and so they wake Jesus up and said, Jesus, wake up, wake up, wake up. We're going to die. Do something. And he stands up in the boat and he calms the storm. The second storm that comes up, he's not in the boat. And so a storm comes up and it's just the disciples out on the lake. And this is the way it is in the Middle East. Sometimes these storms come out and and they overcome you. And if you're on the water in these little dinghy boats, it's very scary. And so Jesus comes walking up on the boat. I imagine this is quite a shocking scene. And he says, do not be afraid. And and Peter says, ha, ha. I'll show you that I'm more advanced than any of the guys in the boat. Command me to come out. And so he he gets out of the boat and he starts walking to Jesus until the waves get high and the storm gets um, uh, fierce and he starts to sink and, and he says, Jesus, save me. And so Jesus saves him. And so I think there are two paradigms about the storms of our lives that are from these stories. Sometimes the storms of our lives, Jesus will calm and remove the storm. And that happens. That's our preference, isn't it? But sometimes, rather than calming the storm, he lifts us up amidst the storm. He's with us, and he holds us, and he protects us in the storm, but the storm is still there. Some of the experiences of our lives, we can talk about how God incredibly delivered us what scared us to death. And other times, he remained there with us. The storm didn't destroy us, but he didn't remove the storm. Whatever was scaring us to death. Those twin paradigms that Jesus is Lord over the storms, but does not mean that he always ends the storm. When I was in college, the way that the philosophical professor would put it, in a crazy a uh, question that students often who didn't have a way to understand what he was asking, he would ask, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? 
Do you remember that kind of a question that the professors, it was a way to say, how, how powerful is God? Is he so powerful that he can make a rock he can't lift? Which is nonsense. But it does reveal a real question, doesn't it? Just how powerful is God? When the early Christians wanted to talk about the power of God, when early Christians wanted to prove Christianity to people who didn't believe, they didn't break out an argument. They didn't break out force. They could have done both. But instead, what they did is they talked about a resurrection. They would say, when Jesus died, we were there. And then, three days later, we saw him. Not just us, but over 500 people. And many of them are still alive. Why don't you go ask them? You see, the power of God isn't to calm storms. He can do that with no effort. It's to raise people from the dead. Physically and spiritually. That's the miracle of miracles. That's the power of your God. No God can raise anyone from the dead but God. Because death is our greatest enemy and our deepest fear. And he's defeated that. And when Paul wants to encourage a church, he had spent three years, Ephesus. He said, do you know that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you? He doesn't say it's over here that you can access. It's already in you. If you are a follower of Christ, the power to raise the dead is in you because Christ is in you. Which brings us to this other half, which is he's with us. The Lord Almighty is with us. Remember to thrive in a liminal age. In this time, we need both power and presence. What do I mean by presence? Presence is comforting when we have no power to change anything, but we don't want to be alone. We want somebody in there with us because we're afraid. And it's infinitely better to have some, the person that's in there with us having the power to change what is breaking our hearts. God with us is a theme of the Bible. If you wanted to, you could trace. There are a number of things you can trace from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And one of them is this idea that God is with us. In the beginning, in the cool of the day, in, in chapter 2, it says that God, what? Walked with Adam and Eve. And they talked, they had conversation in the cool of the day. And then after the fall, that changed everything. No longer did they walk in the cool of the day. What they did is, God would show up. He would have these appearances and conversations. And what did they do? After he uh, uh, left them, they would take a bunch of pile of rocks and they would make what was called an Ebenezer, a memorial. So that when people came by, oh, that's where Jacob met the Lord. Oh, that's where Joseph met the Lord. Oh, that's where Moses met the Lord. They had these Ebenezers. And then when they come out of Egypt, out of, out of slavery, he says, I want you to come out and worship me. And, and so they needed a place to worship him. And so that he had them built what was called a tabernacle, which is a fancy way of saying a big tent that they carried around wherever they went and there was a pillar of fire at night and a cloud that would come over this tent and they would follow uh, this cloud or fire because God was with his people. 
And then David, he said, you know, it's not good for me to have this beautiful palace and then God not have a permanent house for himself. So I want to build this temple. And God said, you can't build the temple, but you can collect everything. Your son will build it. And Solomon builds that temple, a permanent place. But the truth is, it didn't last. And so the church comes along. How do we know the church is that new temple? Because Paul will say, do you, not plural, not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now later he will say you as an individual, but collectively the church, as it gathers together where two or three have gathered together in his name, there he is in our midst. Another theme. But that's not the end. The church is not the end of God's presence. It's also a phase, a transitional period, until there is a permanent way in which God is with us. And we see that in the book in the Revelation when he makes a a new heaven and a new earth. There's no temple because God is with us. No sun, moon, and stars because he's with us. You see, this whole psalm brings up the idea of a refuge, a fortress and and it's playing on the old testament imagery of uh, of cities of refuge if you had done something wrong in the old testament the family of who you had done wrong has a right to pursue you and get justice and a lot of them took justice in their own hands so if you could make it to one of these cities of refuge you could get justice without revenge and so in a way uh, jesus is our refuge We have done wrong. We do deserve vengeance. But we want justice. And Jesus, if we are in him, received what we deserved so that we might be free. If we look to this God, if we will have hope, so we will have hope that's so sure, we will have things that are... uh, are solid and unchangeable, even if everything around us changes, everything turns upside down, our God doesn't. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. If we look to this God, then we will be comforted, even as the storm rages around us and the people roar, even if the mountains, what, fall into the sea. I love this psalm because this psalm gives us a picture uh, when Martin Luther uh, was excommunicated the church. He had, he had taken uh, 95 arguments or complaints against the church. You know, the word reformation was, just simply meant to reform the church. It wasn't to start a new one. And so he, he put up these 95 statements about what he thought was wrong with the church, but he put them in positive way of this is what the church should be about. And as a result of, uh, of doing those Uh, 95 statements the church called him and said defend and this is where he said uh, this is where I stand and no other but what people don't talk about is shortly after that he gets excommunicated and condemned to die and if it wasn't for Frederick the wise I'm sure that wasn't his own title somebody called him that uh, had a castle and said why don't you come live here and I'll protect you and so he lived there and while he was there being the pastor to the castle he wrote a psalm, a, a song based on Psalm 46. And we know it as, a mighty fortress is our God. Where he says, a bulwark. We don't really use that word bulwark anymore, but it, it really is to keep the water out. 
when the storms come in. Never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Where do you go for refuge? Who do you turn to? Where's the power that you access for the storms in your life, the disorientation you feel? Where do you go to get presence? May it be the God who raised the dead and will raise you from the dead to be with him. My uh, brother uh, at 66 died last Monday on his birthday. He had been battling uh, cancer and and. And so some of the conversation was now he won't have pain. He'll be in heaven and, and he'll get to see his, his wife preceded him and one of his children preceded him. So he had a pretty hard. And, and, and so the, the positive thinking was that he'd get to see his family. And that's true. Don't get me wrong. I don't think the scriptures teach that that won't happen. But the scriptures clearly teach that the goal of heaven is for us to be with God and for God to be with us. Not our family and friends and parties. and They'll all be there, but that's not their goal. It's so that what we get now, we will have permanently, fully, always then. And so Psalm 46 is our bulwark. It's our fortress. It's our refuge because it points to the thing that we're always longing for. Someone to rescue us. Someone to calm the storms. And if, if the storms don't get calm, at least protect me in the midst of the storm. And Psalm 46 says, yes, that's the Lord Almighty. And he is with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful psalm, this encouragement to our hearts particularly for those who are in the storm right now, whatever that storm might be, relationships, employment, or just the culture. You look at the things that are going on and it's just overwhelming to see that we have so little power in this world to make foundational, fundamental changes for good. It just seems that way. And so it's so frustrating. It's so discouraging. Help us to remember that you are with us. That even if the storms don't end tomorrow or the next day, we are never alone. You are with us. But that's not only the thing. that The one that is with us has all the power in the world to make all things right and good and redeemed. That if you could do that to the dead raise them, and that that power is at work in us, then all that we see that is broken, all the things that break our hearts, will be made good. Or as C.S. Lewis says, will become untrue. Help us to see that now, to long for it, to work for it, to look to you and rest upon it for, from you, and help us turn to our only refuge that all the other refuges point to.
The only Savior, all the other Saviors that we have held on to, point to. In the mighty hand of that Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.